I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. I want to welcome all of you who are listening in Washington, D.C., and those who are checking out the program as a podcast after the fact. Look, a lot of activity has taken place uh, with the Supreme Court. Uh, we're embroiled in you know, some significant battles back here in Seneca territory uh, regarding gaming compacts with the state and the overriding federal law. So I want to I want to revisit some of the things that I've talked about over the last couple of weeks, but I want to put it together in a way that that people can first research what I'm saying, verify what I'm saying very easily, and and understand kind of the flow of of how we end up in a situation like we have here, where there's mixed views on the Supreme Court. There seems to be almost an inconsistency when it comes to some uh, folks like Neil Gorsuch on the court, who seems who on the face looks like he's always in favor of native issues, and oftentimes aligns himself with the more liberal sides of the court, and and of course the other side. So I want to get into into a lot of it. Um, one of the things that that I've talked about on the show before has been the doctrine of Christian discovery. Now, the doctrine of Christian discovery is this church-based, Vatican-based doctrine that becomes a, a, essentially not just a political doctrine, but a legal doctrine, born out of the, the, the essentially the 15th century, late 15th century. And, you know, first, uh, it was, uh, you know, the, one of the first papal bulls issued was really relating to uh, Portugal and other European countries going into Western Africa to pillage, essentially, these areas of non-Christian populations, or pagans, or Saracens, as they were called. And basically, the, the Pope, in these, in these papal bulls, these doctrines, basically, you know, gave not just permission, but, but also, but even promoted that these Christian nations of Europe would go into the lands of non-Christians and basically take everything, land, resources, any, any wealth, minerals, gold, and basically take the people and, and subject them to, to slavery and or perpetual servitude, as it was called. And, you know, in, along the lines, there was, you know, there would be conversations about conversion, converting them to Christians, but they wouldn't be, you know, the same, in the same status as Europeans, as white people, but they would be, you know, converted almost dehumanized uh, individuals, de uh, converted slaves. I mean, what could be better than having a slave that you can not only threaten physically, but you can threaten them spiritually? And, and so the idea of converting these people that you are now subjug subjugating uh, is, is, is a part of that subjugation. So this doctrine, so it begins with Columbus, you know, as it comes to this, this continent, and, and of course more papal bulls, would be um, issued that basically almost 
creates a dividing line between Spain and England and, and other countries about who gets what as the, as the Vatican is making determinations about you know, who, who has legitimate claim to discovery. And of course, they were suggesting that discovery was the same thing as just owning it. But l- l- let me explain how this doctrine becomes, uh, or this, these papal bulls, this church um, belief becomes codified in U.S. law. And that happens in, the, uh, in around 1823 with, the, with John Marshall, who was the, um, uh, the head of the Supreme Court at the time, Chief Justice. And he is making some determinations, um, again, between white folks who are disputing about lands that they believe they either own or control. Um, there was some de- debate on one party claiming that they had gotten a lease from the Cherokee and another party claiming they got a, had gotten a lease or, or purchased through, um, you know, through the state of um, uh, uh, George, I believe. Um, and John, John Marshall basically at that point codifies the whole notion of doctrine of discovery into U.S. law. He basically says that the sovereignty of Native people, to the extent that it existed at all, became diminished upon discovery. doesn't say why. He just makes that broad statement that once we were discovered by white people, by Christians, that, we, that our sovereignty just evaporated. You know, he suggested that, that Native people um, were never a people who had the same views towards land ownership that Europeans did, and that's, that's true. But and as such, he said, we didn't really have rights to the land because we didn't have that same philosophy that Europeans did, that we had no rights to the land, that we, we simply were like the animals. We had, a, we had a right to be there. You know, he called it the right to occupancy. But, of course, we, we know that neither Native people nor, nor the animals uh, would have their occupancy ever protected by the, by the United States or by the courts or the Constitution. So, but, 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 again, the whole point was that the Supreme Court in this, the Johnson v. McIntosh would determine that Native people had no rights to the land. Now, the problem with this ruling that comes in 1823 is that there has already been conversations with Native people. The, the Canandaigua Treaty of 1794, the United States, um, rep, who George Washington was the president at the time, and his, uh, his representatives had negotiated terms where three times in the Canandaigua Treaty, they basically said, the land is yours. We acknowledge that your land is yours. It's your property, and we will never claim the same, nor will we, distur- will we disturb you in your free use and enjoyment of that land or the free use and enjoyment of your friends and allies that, uh, that join with you. There was, I mean, there was no conversation in the Canandaigua Treaty that, that represents any diminishment of the, the people of the Haudenosaunee, the Six Nations. In fact, there's the, one of the final um, uh, articles of the, of the treaty talks about conflict resolution and how if, if a white man commits a crime against, uh, uh, against the, the people of the Six Nations, that we would make a complaint to the white authorities and they would uh, deal with it. And if one of our people made, uh, you know, committed a crime or a, alleged crime against uh, a non-native, that, that we would be petitioned. So there was even a very strong mutual respect and mutual understanding. Now, 
the, the treaty also represented huge sessions of land and, uh, and, and some other commitments by the United States. Now, I must say that although this is a treaty from 1794, one of the terms of that treaty has to do with the United States making perpetual payments in, in, in the form of either cloth, uh, farm implements, animals, that kind of stuff, to the tune of $4,500. That's 1794 money, $4,500. The United States still makes those payments. In fact, you know, now it's, it's, it's solely in, in, um, in cloth. And I'm, when I cloth, I mean bolts of, uh, of material. And there is somebody who, who works in Washington whose job it is, is once a year to requisition $4,500 worth of uh, printed cloth to be distributed amongst the uh, the Six Nations. So, regardless of how any of us feel about the the Canandaigua Treaty, the United States is still recognizing it in terms of that payment obligation. Although they they had suspended that for many years and and then had to you know pick it back up again, but but these are matters of fact. Okay, <laughs> so you have a treaty from 1794 that basically is saying we recognize that your land is yours and we will never claim it. The United States will never claim the territory of the Six Nations. I live here on the Cattaraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. This land is held by the Seneca Nation. It's not a New York State deed. It's not a U.S. deed. This land has its original title that is clearly held by the Seneca Nation. So in spite of the fact that in, in 1823, you got Justice John Marshall making a complete opposite claim that Native people don't hold title to the land, you know, a previous president, George Washington, his administration had fully acknowledged that, that, that you know, at least the Six Nations, and this is, you know, this is one of the problems that exists with this, these broad um, pan-Indian laws that get, that get passed by the United States or policies. So even though the doctrine of Christian discovery becomes essentially the basis for many, much of um, U.S. law, U.S. native policy, um, Canadian policy, indigenous po policy that, of, of nations interacting with indigenous people all over the globe, the, it isn't, it's not as clear, and it certainly has contradictory uh, uh, elements and uh, you know, history that come, comes before it. So... But there's no question that the doctrine of Christian discovery becomes codified in U.S. law and then becomes the basis for the United States to claim jurisdiction, overall um, claim to land title, and, you know, and, and of course, everything associated with land use uh, and, and the activities that we, that we have. Now, what comes out of that case and, and, a, and a few other cases is the Supreme Court making a legal judgment and declaring that the founding fathers of the United States um, intended for Congress to hold the plenary powers over the affairs of Native people and, and go beyond that, and that it's Congress that regulates the meets and bounds. This is the legal dicta, right? That has the power to regulate the meets and bounds of tribal sovereignty. Now, 
they claim that that it's born out of uh, out of the U.S. Constitution. It's clear it's clear that the United States claim over Native people is born out of the doctrine of Christian discovery. I mean, there's there's really almost no debate to that. But when you start looking at okay, so where in the federal government does that authority lie? And then the Supreme Court says, well, it lies with Congress. And they base that on they claim on the Constitution. Now we are mentioned three times in the U.S. Constitution. And in all three times that were mentioned, none of that is, is in any kind of reference to being subordinate to the United States. In fact, the three times were mentioned in the U.S. Constitution, originally now, the original U.S. Constitution, it is clear that we are not part of it. In fact, the first mention of us is in the Appropriations Clause of the U.S. Constitution. And there it states clearly that we are not to be enumerated for congressional representation. You know, this is the same part where it's like three-fifths of a man where, where the you know, southern uh, states would be granted congressional representation for the amount of slaves that they had, but they would only be judged at three-fifths of a man. Well, in that same line, it says, but Native people, uh, Indians not taxed shall not be, taught, uh, be counted. So we are not represented by the United States. Clearly, the apportionment clause makes it, makes it crystal clear that we are not a part of it. Now, we're mentioned two other places. One is in, uh, has to do with executive powers and uh, the treaty clause. And there it says that the president shall have the power to negotiate treaties with foreign nations and with Indian tribes. So there, we're held up as something distinct from foreign nations because we live here, it's our lands, but we're held at par as far as how the United States interacts with foreign nations and with, uh, and, and with Indian tribes, as they keep calling us. So now we're not being equated necessarily with foreign. We're not being called foreign nations, but we are being, we are, but we are being distinguished as entities living sometimes on shared lands, I guess, but living in the, within the continental bounds of what the United States is claiming theirs but with the same autonomy and distinction as foreign nations. You know, and there's no other way to interpret that. Now, there's also, we're also mentioned in the Commerce Clause, and the Commerce Clause is where the Supreme Court, time and time again, is insisting that that's proof that the Founding Fathers wanted Congress to have power over Native people. Plenary powers. Plenary means ultimate. And all the Commerce Clause says is that, is that Congress shall have the power to regulate the commerce between or with with foreign nations among several states and with Indian tribes. Now, I've got to put a, a major emphasis on the word with, because essentially what it, that line says is that Congress has the power to regulate its people conducting commerce with native people. You know, whatever, and, and that's still something that could be obviously interpreted broadly. But to suggest that because the Founding Fathers, because the U.S. Constitution mentions that Congress has the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and with Indian tribes, to suggest that that means, oh yeah, they, they wanted them to have power over, you know, plenary powers over Indian tribes. Well, that would be like saying that, that the Founding Fathers wanted the Congress to have the power over foreign nations. And of course, 
we know that the State Department, we know that, you know, based on the treaty clause and other things, that, that it's the, the, the executive branch that negotiates its relationship with, um, with foreign nations. And, and they certainly are not granted via their U.S. Constitution power over the foreign nations. So to, to say that the language, when it refers to foreign nations, is different than when it refers to Indian tribes is obviously absurd because it's the same phrase. It's the same sentence with foreign nations, among several states, and with Indian tribes. So there is no basis in the Constitution for the United States to claim authority, for the United States period to, to claim authority over Native people, and certainly to say that Congress is the, is the department or is the, um, the division of U.S. government that has that power. I mean, it, it, it just simply doesn't make any sense. Now, Justice Clarence Thomas actually addressed this a number of years ago in a case called U.S. v. Lara. Uh, it's L-A-R-A. Some people say Lara, but it's, just to be clear, it's U.S. versus Billy Joe Lara, L-A-R-A. Billy Joe was a jerk. <laughs> he beat his, uh, um, his domestic partner, and I don't know if they were married or not, but um, he was abusive, and he was, you know, the tribal police were called multiple times, and finally he was uh, issued a, um, a restraining order, and he was banned from coming to the territory of, uh, of, his, of his wife. He was native, she was native, but from different, different communities, different territories. So he was banned from being there, and he shows up and has an incident. Tribal police show up, and he assaults um, several of them, I guess, or, or a couple of these, these tribal police officers. So he gets arrested and gets charged with assault of a tribal officer and, and serves time for it. But then the feds say, you know, one of those tribal officers was also a BIA um, tribal police officer, Bureau of Indian Affairs tribal police officer. So basically he, that po police officer gets his um, um, authority from the federal government. So they charged Billy Jolera with um, the assault of a federal officer, which is... a it is a more severe crime, apparently, depending on the color of your skin and where you come from, I guess. Um, it, it associates the severity of the crime. Billy Joe argues, well, you can't charge me with that. I, you know, there's double jeopardy. You can't, you can't charge me with that. And so this goes all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court rules that, yes, you can be charged. And part of the reason the Supreme Court says is, look, the tribal courts are autonomous and even the tribal police, even though there, there are some crossover officers uh, from federal to, to tribal, but the tribal courts that, that where you were charged originally and served time, um, they get their authority from inherent sovereignty. So you, ha you had literally had the Justice Department and ultimately the Supreme Court acknowledging that we, that we possess a certain level of inherent sovereignty as it relates to the prosecution of crimes. And as such, they say, so it isn't double jeopardy if the federal government turns around charges because they are two distinct uh, legal authorities. And, and, they, and one doesn't give, you can't make the, the claim that tribal police get their authority from the federal government and ergo, you can, uh, you know, the double jeopardy uh, standard can apply. Well, Billy Joe Lara failed in, in that argument and he ended up being charged um, it's, it's a strange thing where the native guy is claiming that sovereignty uh, is not there in place and, and the federal government is claiming that it is. But Clarence Thomas issued a, 
dissenting opinion in the ruling, uh, in the affirming uh, ruling. And among the, the gist of his argument was that the Supreme Court has been schizophrenic on issues of, uh, relating to uh, tribal jurisdiction and tribal sovereignty. And he said that he can see no place in the, um, uh, in the Constitution where there is a legitimate claim for this plenary powers doctrine, that Congress has that, that authority by virtue of the U.S. Constitution. And, and he points out the fallacies of, uh, of, of that argument. And, but now having said that, Clarence Thomas isn't suggesting the United States shouldn't have authority over Native people. He's just saying that the plenary do powers doctrine, as it exists with the congressional powers, is something that is not legally valid. It's not founded in law, and it's not founded in the U.S. Constitution. So I know that that's Clarence Thomas's view. And he's also suggested that the court does need to address this. And this schizophrenia, these very, the various fixes that you know, the, the Congress has tried to pass and over the years to, to, you know, to correct the inconsistencies. And again, when you consider the in inconsistencies of the United States, go back to Canandaigua Treaty versus uh, Johnson v. McIntosh. I mean, it's, the, the history is complicated and, and it's very, very contradictory. So anyway, so I know that that's Clarence Thomas's view. So then we come to this ICWA challenge, the Indian Child Welfare Challenge. And the Supreme Court rules seven to two um, to throw out the challenge uh, in uh, Halland versus Brackeen or Brackeen versus Holland. Uh, Holland. That's Deb Halland and the Brackeen family from Texas. Um, and they throw out the whole case. I mean, they don't even consider much of it. Now, the merits of the case are not fully uh, evaluated because some of the some of that the challenge was. Um, was thrown out because of standing. They said the plaintiffs didn't have the standing to bring certain legal arguments. So the, the main legal argument that was brought was whether the Indian Child Welfare Act was, uh, was, was constitutional, whether, the, 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 whether Congress could overreach states' rights. Now, states have always had the, you know, the, the responsibility to deal with family court, adoption, you know, child placement and, you know, child welfare issues. That's always essentially been the purview of, of state or county courts and, and services. Ch CPS, for instance, the, they usually run out of the, out of the counties. Um, and in the Indian Child Welfare Act, what Congress was, uh, was attempting to do was to right a longstanding wrong that involved everything from residential schools, which were congressionally approved and federally funded. So this was a federal violation, the idea that children could be ripped from their homes and sent to these prison camps called schools. But those prison camps called schools would also um, serve as um, a point of origin for uh, state services to send those kids out to foster care and, and, and to adopt them out. So not only were the kids ripped from their homes to send to these schools, many of these kids would never go back home. They would be sent out to, uh, through foster care and, and through the adoption. Now that's the state playing a role. Now the state would, would do that even without residential schools. The state was going into native territories, ripping kids out of their homes and, um, because, and, and, and quite frankly, possibly for some legitimate reasons, you know, alcohol uh, running rampant as a, as a 
as an intended policy of the United States on native territories, made some of these um, uh, domestic environments pretty unsavory for children. So the states were asserting their power to remove kids from homes, and then they were placing them in places that the state believed that they were better off with white people. I mean, at, at some point, 40%, at the time that, before ICWA gets passed in, in 1978, something like 40% of all native children had been removed from homes and were being raised in some fashion, either at residential schools, foster care, or adoption, raised by white people. So that's what ICWA was supposed to stop. Now, but what ICWA didn't do, it didn't recognize our sovereignty. It recognized the sin of, uh, of assimilation, essentially, <laughs> at least when it came to forced assimilation of children. And the law attempted to put federal guardrails up so the state child protective services could no longer place native kids with, um, uh, with white families. Uh, or they had to prioritize. They still were, and they still could, but um, they had to exhaust any and all possibilities of placing that child or those children with Native families. In fact, the law even suggested that a Native child could be placed not only in, within a family member within the tribe, but even to be, faced, to be placed in, a, in another nation, another Indigenous nation. Again, Congress was now taking the position that the main, maintenance of our, of our culture was, um, uh, was, was so important that, uh, um, that they had to put federal you know, guidelines uh, for the states to follow. And that's what the Brackeens were, were challenging. And frankly, that's what seven of the U.S. justices ruled on. They basically said, yeah, the plenary powers doctrine, the, uh, Congress has the power to, to rule on the, all affairs of, of Native people. And so, and in fact, uh, um, the uh, Amy Coney Barrett, who wrote the, the, the main uh, affirming opinion, said early on, you know, that if you're challenging, you know, the authority of Congress, then that's a non-starter. You know, you're, 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 you're dead at the gate. And, and that's, the way, that's the way the Supreme Court ruled, except for <laughs> Sam Alito, which, and I didn't read his opinion, but... And, and Justice um, Clarence Thomas. Now, Clarence Thomas has already previously stated he didn't support this, um, the, the legal uh, standing of the plenary powers doctrine. So I'm not surprised that he ruled against it. Um, I don't know fully what, uh, what Sam Alito's position was on it. But, but at the end of the day, you do have... Um, at least in those two justices, an argument that Congress does not have plenary powers over Native people. But the other seven, now, and that includes some conservatives, obviously there's only three liberals on the court in terms of um, um, Kagan, Sotomayor, and Jackson. But for the most part, and, and, I, and again, I don't know fully why uh, Alito ruled against uh, the ICWA the, uh, the challenge, but the Supreme Court has always, in fact, they invented this, uh, the plenary powers doctrine. And, and it's clear that it, that it is more based on the doctrine of Christian discovery, the idea that when Christian nations showed up on our shores, that they could just claim everything in terms of you know, jurisdiction, land, everything. 
And, and in fact, that's how native people became a major part of the slave trade, not just in the Caribbean, but in the United States, in the, in the colonies. So, but, but so here you have this, um, once again, reaffirmed power of Congress, this plenary powers of Congress over native people. And that's why Congress could pass this Indian Child Welfare Act. Uh, you know, you, you would think, well, doesn't the Interior Department have a role? Well, the Interior Department is not Congress. The Interior Department is an executive uh, department. So there, there's usually plenty of con uh, confusion there. But this plenary powers doctrine, you know, although some of my own people, <laughs> Native people, will argue you know, how great ICWA was, ICWA was a terrible law because it still never gave us authority over our own children. Now, having said that, I live here on the Cattaraugus Territory of the Seneca Nation. I will say that New York State and the county courts, at least around Seneca Territory, will defer to the Seneca Nation courts on, on child custody issues. Now, they aren't bound by law to do it, but there's this thing called comedy, and I don't mean comedy as in funny haha, I mean comedy as C-O-M-I-T-Y. And it is, it is a respect of sovereignty, whether it is mandated by law or not. And much of the relationships that Native peoples have with certain um, municipal or, or um, law enforcement agencies have a certain level of this. The problem is that, that it doesn't have any um, overbearing legal mandate for this to exist. But here in Seneca Territory, the courts will defer to the tribal, the, the outside courts, the county courts, will defer to the Seneca Nation courts on issues of child custody. Now, CPS is still involved. And in fact, it's still CPS that oftentimes will remove a child from a home, do an investigation. So we don't have our own CPS systems here. And if, if the Indian Child Welfare Act really wanted to do something, they would have funded native territories to develop the infrastructure for our own uh, child protective services. Now, unfortunately, that would still mean they would probably model them after the states, which is oftentimes is problematic. But, but clearly there would be different guidelines because we would, you know, if we were making the determination that a child needs to be removed from a home, we would certainly not send them off to be raised by white people. I mean, we just, we just wouldn't do that, right? So, but it doesn't stop with ICWA. You know, I, and this brings me to a subject matter that I've talked about quite a bit on this, um, on this program, and it has to do with gaming. The, the, Indi or the um, Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, it gets passed in 1988. But in 1987, the Supreme Court had ruled in a case in California against the Cabazon Band of Mission Indians where the, California was trying to shut down a high-stakes bingo operation that the Cabazons were operating. And the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Cabazons. They said, look, there's no underlying federal statute. There's no statutory framework that either gives federal control over native gaming or state control over native gaming. So it's legal. There's, there's, yeah, and as far as the court was concerned, if the state had legal gaming, then native people could have legal gaming. They could regulate their own gaming operations on their territory. So that had its own, you know, resounding effects as, that, as news spread. And the concern, not so much by our people, but, uh, you know, by states was, 
with this Cabazon ruling, there would all of a sudden be an inundation of native gaming, including going well beyond high-stakes bingo, casino gaming, and the like. So states argued that Congress needed to act. And they needed to act because we would be inundated with, with organized crime, with you know, unsavory characters. Um, we would have casinos on our territory that were ours in name only, but you know, there would be others that would be operating it and benefiting from it. And so Congress passes the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. And, and it says that the reason it was passed was to protect us. It was to protect us and to ensure that when native gaming is done, and, and, and again, this law says, you know, we're passing this law to promote economic development, stronger native government, and, you know, and all these things that sound really nice, right? And, and to protect them from organized crime. And we could argue to protect us from over-aggressive states like California trying to shut down the Cabazons, for instance. But what they did was they said, you, the, the one requirement, initial requirement of a, of a, of a legal gaming operation, of, and this is class three gaming, this is casino gaming, was that the tribe had to enter into a gaming compact with the states. So after <clears throat> decades of us fighting, including the Cabazons fighting in California, but decades of us fighting the states, and, and maybe century, <laughs> but of fighting states over the states trying to do certain things on our lands, including things like run a throughway through Seneca territory, right? After all of these years of fighting the state, Congress, in their infinite wisdom and with their so-called plenary powers doctrine, says, we're going to put you in business with the state. We're going to put the state in your business. And you're going to need to negotiate a, um, a gaming compact with the states. Now, again, keep in mind, Gaming was already legal before the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. It was legal before, before the Cabazon case because the Cabazon case didn't make native gaming legal. It just acknowledged that we had the legal right to do it. Now, it's not to say that we didn't have states trying to charge native people with ga uh, gaming violations and you know, illegal gaming. In fact, we had plenty of people um, here in Seneca Territory that were charged with illegal gaming operations. And most of them settled them in, in, in some manner because... They were being pressed on these issues uh, be before the Cabazon case ruling. But here's another situation where a law that wasn't needed for us was passed because, the, the, because Congress was responding to state concerns. So they used their plenary powers doctrine to impose and, and create a statutory framework that for all intents and purposes now exists to say, now we can determine whether a gaming operation on a native territory is legal or not. And it's not legal if, um, if the, the gaming tribe has not entered into good faith negotiations with the state for a state gaming compact. Now, nothing in the gaming compact suggests that the states have any right to revenue. In fact, it says they don't. They said they can't be taxed. They can't tax the gaming operation. They can't uh, impose fees on the gaming operation. All the, the, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act says that is if in the, in the cost of the state's role in its regulatory um, uh, obligations, that they can, if they incur costs, they can submit billing to the, 
the gaming operation, the native gaming operation, itemized billing. They can, they can, but that billing has to be approved. They have to submit charges or, or costs that the that were already set and approved in the gaming compact or um, approved afterwards. So you can't just send a bill for $60 million and expect it to get paid. No, it has to be itemized. And the itemized um, costs have to be something that was already agreed upon. And of course, states like New York certainly weren't doing that after, after uh, IGRA. But there was no means for the state necessarily within the letter of the law to collect revenue from gaming. So what was talked about afterwards was, well, could native territories share revenue with the state? Well, yeah, they could enter into revenue sharing agreements. But what the Interior Department, which is the agency charged with, with essentially enforcing IGRA, said was, but the states cannot disguise a tax um, as revenue sharing. And the test that we have for whether a revenue sharing agreement is really just a tax or not is whether the state has offered a substantial concession, a concession that benefits the business. Again, it has to benefit the business and it has to be quantifiable. So what the Interior Department says, the state's concession for revenue sharing must be substantial and quantifiable. Now, the problem is the Interior Department wasn't, wasn't stepping up to quantify or to determine whether the, the state's offering, its concession, was substantial or quantifiable. And when we told them that it wasn't, the Interior Department did nothing. So this is the problem with this Congressional Act, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, getting passed, and then nothing that, it, uh, that is intended to enforce or, or to regulate the states is upheld. Now, keep in mind, it is clear in the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act that the intention was and it's, it's, it's spelled out in the law that the tribes would be the, um, the most, uh, would be the beneficiary of, these, uh, of, of gaming. They, they would be, you know, they had to be prioritized and they had to be the significant beneficiary of these gaming operations. Well, when you look at what the Senecas went through with, with New York State, their revenue sharing agreement, because of the way it was crafted, the wordsmithing, and because the an arbitration panel who uh, who was called into uh, to answer a withholding of revenue sharing payments, because of, of this mechanism, the Seneca's actually paid fifty percent of their revenue to the state of New York in revenue sharing. Now that doesn't even address how much the state has benefited benefited from gaming in, in places where there wasn't revenue sharing, like Minnesota and, and other places. I mean, the Seneca Nation makes huge contributions, you know, some in, in the, uh, under the guise of marketing. They sponsor every concert, every sports team, every um, um, entertainment venue in, in Western New York. They've they sent money to hospitals and schools and that kind of thing. And because we don't have a, a true economy where money can come into our communities and circulate the, the three times necessary for us to really see the economic benefit of dollars coming into our territories, the state benefits from everything. Because the money that comes into Seneca Nation, well, even the, the money that comes into the individual Senecas, gets spent off territory immediately. And, and again, that doesn't address the fact that 80% of the employees of Seneca Gaming are white and they pay state and federal income tax. 
They buy homes and pay taxes on those homes. They buy cars and pay taxes on those cars. So the amount of tax revenue that the state receives is, is significant. So there is no question that when you look at the Seneca gaming operations here, the state is the most significant beneficiary of the gaming operation. And yet, although it violates IGRA, there has been no enforcement mechanism. This is the failure of having Congress claiming to have this plenary powers and enforcing and, and, and Native people. Now, we could argue, well, what if we had challenged IGRA? What if we did gaming without, that, that operated outside of uh, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act? Well, I think that was that's a valid you know argument, and in fact, class two gaming doesn't require um, that kind of oversight from the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act or or a gaming compact. So if you do high stakes bingo and certain even certain table games that could be considered class two, or if you do slot machines that are banked differently than um, than the Vegas style style slots, you there are class two gaming machines. In fact, New York State has many of them. They have them. Even in the area that they claim to have offered an exclusivity to the Seneca Nation, they have three venues right here in Western New York that have that that are racetracks filled with slot slot machines. But they just happen to fall just this side of the the Class Two designation. You see, it used to be one of the most distinguishing features of a slot machine was that you put money in it. You put coins in it, and coins came out. So you know, that's why they were called slot machines, because they had a slot, right? You, you put coins or tokens in, and, and when you won, coin, you know, they all rang out and fell out, out into a tray. None of the industry uses that anymore. They all use a bill exchanger where you, you put in a, a bill, and then you get a credit, and then it spits out a receipt. That used to be more of the nature of a Class two machine, but now, even the class three machines, look, the burden of, uh, of you know, the, the coins and the, uh, uh, you know, and, and the tokens, I mean, it just became, um, you know, unsustainable. It was much easier, and frankly, it was much easier to track because now you had individuals, you know, if you, if you won a big prize, you had to go to a certain window and they took tax information and stuff like that. So, I mean, it was much easier for the state and, for that matter, the federal government to, to monitor the payouts of a slot machine. Now, I've heard some people say, well, yeah, but the, the Senecas were only paying 25% you know, to the state. No, it was 25% of the gross. They called it the, slot, the net slot drop. But it's really the gross revenue of a slot machine. It's, it's the revenue minus the payouts. So on the 75% that the, the Senecas got to keep, they had to pay all of the expenses of operating a casino. Everything from every employee to the maintenance of the building, the electricity, the, you know, some of these uh, vendors actually, they were actually entitled to a certain cut of the machines. But all, that all came out of the Seneca's cut. You know, cocktail waitresses, you know, uh, drinks, you're subsidizing, you know, the hotels that are not necessarily money-making operations. That, frankly, subsidizing the table games that are not necessarily you know, money-making operations. These are all the amenities you offer in a casino, but at the end of the day, it's the slot machines that make the money. And, and it's when you took all of the, the, the costs out of uh, operating the casino, what the state was getting was, was right at 50%. And, and here's how I, I come to that number. In the 21 years of the gaming, since, you know, since the first gaming compact with the state, and the Senecas are in negotiating right now, 
The state will have received $2.2 billion, while the Senecas will ultimately take uh, $2.4 billion out of that. Now, you say, well, see, the Senecas made a little bit more money. But the only reason the Senecas have made $200 million more than the state was because back in, in uh, 2013, they had been withholding payments because they alleged that the state was breaching the compact with all of those racetrack casinos I talked about. And so as a settlement to that breach of the compact, the state accepted um, and was willing to forfeit $200 million of a $600 million escrow account um, to proceed and to settle the, settle the dispute. So the Senecas kept $200 million and then turned over $400 million of, of the $600 million escrow account. Had they not gotten that $200 million in that settlement agreement, the state would have been the one pulling in $2.4 billion, while the Senecas would have been at $2.2. I mean, that, those numbers alone, without considering any of the other economic impact and who the real beneficiaries of the economic impact, that breakdown alone violates the federal law. And it's the state violating it. Because the Senecas were trying to stop this payment. Because the language of the compact didn't have them paying in the last seven years. But two white guys on our arbitration panel says, yeah, but yeah, it doesn't say it, but it's, you know, obviously they have to keep paying. They never considered any of the, the terms of IGRA. They never considered the, the substantial and quantifiable nature of the concession. None of that stuff. They just said, yeah, well, you were paying for 14 years. Of course, you got to pay for another seven. Well, now we sit um, in a period of negotiation between the Seneca Nation and, and the state of New York for a new compact. And it's causing all kinds of uh, concerns. But again, the state is not entitled to any revenue sharing. But the way the language is in IGRA, which is kind of leaves some things up to interpretation, the assumption that is made by many native operators of gaming is that they have to wine and dine the state to negotiate a compact. It's not true because the law says the states are required by law to, to negotiate in good faith. But all the experts, the consultants, all these people, they, they tell these native operators, you got to pay to play. It's not fair. It's not right. It's not even necessarily legal, but it's the way the game is played. So you offer revenue sharing under some guise of exclusivity to get the state to the table. Now, the Senecas were willing to pay almost 20% again of the net slot, of the gross slot revenue. And the deal fell apart at the state legislature before the Seneca people actually even knew any of the details. In fact, most of the state legislature didn't know the details. But I, I bring this up because IGRA was a law that was not necessary for us. It was required by the states, and it did help out vendors. I will say that. One of the things that the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act did was it made it clear that a state could not uh, hold a vendetta you know, against a gaming company, a, a supplier, a vendor, even a, you know, a lender um, who entered into a contract with, um, with a native gaming operator. Because, look, the state could say, well, we're only going to allow you in this state and to operate in this state if you deal with licensed gaming operations. Well, since the state doesn't license, and they could say state licensed gaming operations, since the state doesn't license native gaming operations, they could have been 
vindictive and they could have, you know, had retribution towards those companies. And, and it was already playing out. So this isn't just hypothetical. This, is, this was already playing out. Once Iger was passed, now those vendors all had a legal framework to say, well, you see, I can legally, you, you can't, you know, prosecute me or persecute me for, for engaging in a contract with, uh, it's, it's, there's a statu statutory framework, a, a federal statutory framework now. So, I mean, it did help us in terms of paving the way for us to, to have contracts with vendors, but it mostly helped the vendors. But it wasn't necessary in terms of the, the definitive assessment of whether our right to do gaming was legal or not. This actually created um, a scenario where the feds could determine whether our gaming operation was illegal, where it couldn't have been before. I want to. I only got a few minutes left here, so I want to. I want to go back and go through a little bit of history again, because I think it's important that people realize that we weren't part of the U.S. Constitution in the beginning. As I mentioned early on, oftentimes you know people will raise well, but when in um, after slavery and, and the Fourteenth Amendment, weren't Native people then under the U.S. Constitution? And we would argue that no. And in fact, courts have real, ruled that the 14th Amendment, which is, you know, which essentially was passed to, um, to grant citizenship to former slaves and full citizenship and, and autonomy to, to, to former slaves, it basically said um, that if you were born in the United States and, um, and were under U.S. jurisdiction, you were hereby declared, you know, citizens. Well, there was a lot of question about whether we were under U.S. jurisdiction. In fact, the courts have ruled since then that the 14th Amendment did not apply to Native people. It was almost specifically to, uh, to former enslaved and, 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 and to black people who, you know, may have been free, but, you know, were, were being enslaved in the, in the slave states prior. So it was about full citizenship to um, uh, African-Americans, to be clear. And the United States knew it. So in 1924, they passed what they called the Indian Citizenship Act. And, and I'm just going to read it. It's a short thing. It says, be it enacted by the Senate and House of Representatives, the United States of America, uh, the, uh, of the United States of America in Congress assembled, that all non-citizen Indians born within the territorial limits of the United States be and there are and they are hereby declared to be citizens of the United States, provided that granting such citizenship shall not in any manner impair or otherwise affect the right of any Indian to tribal or other property. So they pass a law declaring that we were citizens. I mean, and all of us, it didn't matter what the individual treaties that we had or you know, what, you know, how autonomous we were, what we had in place. This is 1924. That law was already being deemed throughout the world as, as a war crime. That was considered denationalization. The idea of stripping away a people's national character and imposing another national character upon them. That's exactly what the Citizenship Act was because it just declares it. It doesn't say, okay, we're going to pass a, um, a streamline or a fast-track manner in which uh, Native people can, can apply to be U.S. citizens. They have the right to be U.S. citizens so they can register and become U.S. citizens. No, it doesn't say that. It's just, no, we're just declaring it. Denationalization would be a word, a, a term that was used initially by the international community, but later that word would be reinterpreted uh, under a new word called genocide. 
creating the conditions intentionally to make a people cease to exist. Well, that's what citizenship was. So <laughs> that's, or this imposed citizenship was. And you know what? The United States knew that that didn't quite work. So what did they do? Ten years later, um, they passed um, the Indian Reorganization Act. And that was another attempt to, um, to define who Native people were, what we were. They claimed that it was all about, you know, oh, we're going to give them the right to, you know, to govern themselves. Of course, they wanted to restructure all Native governments. They wanted us all to be constitutional governments just like them and to operate in, uh, in a way that was consistent with the U.S. Constitution. But it was also this broad declaration that defined Native people as a tribe, band, or nation of Indians subordinate to the laws of the United States. But you know what? The United States knew that didn't work either. Because today, in, in order for a Native territory, a Native people, a tribe, to reclaim lost land through the, uh, by taking land into federal Indian trust, they have, to, they have to somehow prove that they were under U.S. jurisdiction in 1934. Well, that suggests one thing for clear, that for sure, that not all Native people were under U.S. jurisdiction in 1934, in spite of the Indian Reorganization Act. So that's, that's where we sit here. So we sit here in an environment where court after court, ruling after ruling, asserts a congressional authority that has no foundation in law, no foundation in the U.S. Constitution, and certainly no foundation in the ceding by Native people of our jurisdiction to the United States or specifically to Congress. It's a lie. I wanted to explain it in this way, and I, and I wanted to do a certain amount of concentration on, um, on the gaming law because it, it highlights the, the problems and, and the, the real distinct problems that exist when Congress passes a law that we're not even involved in and then imposes things like state gaming compacts on Native people and leaves most Native people believing that if they don't pay the states off and pay them to come to the table and to negotiate, and of course it's not in good faith if you're paying them, if we don't pay the states then we are in jeopardy not only of not being able to open up a, a casino, but if we have an existing one that's been operating for 21 years like the Senecas have, there's a genuine fear among the elected officials of the Seneca Nation that if they don't offer revenue sharing, the state walks away and their casinos will have to shut down. And the Interior Department just sits there silent on the issue. The fact of the matter is the states can't shut down a native casino. And the federal government will not shut down a native casino if it's the state that walks away from, a, uh, from compact negotiations. And if the reason the state's walking away is because they want revenue sharing, that's illegal. The problem is the federal government doesn't enforce the laws against the states. They seem to only force them, enforce them against native people. That's it for me, for me folks. <clears throat> I'm John Kane. This is Resistance Radio. We'll be back next week, and we'll, uh, we'll hit a new topic all over again. Thanks for listening. Yahweh.